Because salamanders are basically biological crossbows. They've got a very imposing demeanour. Hello and welcome to Herpetological Highlights, the podcast about reptiles, amphibians and... Uh, Crocodiles. Crocodilians, that's right. And and those turtles. Yes, Chelonia. Chelonians. Yeah. Um, today we're going to be talking once again about salamanders, arguably some of the most endearing creatures on the planet. They're, um, they're delightfully slippery, they're sort of nice and moist, and yeah, today we're going to be talking about their some of their physical attributes and some evolutionary bits and bobs and there's a new species which isn't a salamander as well yeah this is this is this is a patreon episode is it not yes this is a patreon episode for max mclarnan so thanks max and hopefully enjoy your podcast episode about hydromantes um well what to say about these little 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 salamanders i know i i realize i never looked up a picture of of them of I don't understand how you species. can do that. I always have to look up a picture first thing, or I just struggle to engage with whatever I'm doing. Ah, here we go. I actually won a book about salamanders the other day. I'm sorry, you won a book? <laughs> yeah, I won a book. It was awesome. In a raffle. Um, nice. At the British Herpetological Society Amphibian and Reptile Conservation short title scientific meeting. Um, hmm. Which is really good. It was really fun. Um, and yeah, I won a book and it was about, it's, um, they auctioned off the collection of um, Tim Halliday, who was an amphibian conservationist who sadly died. And one of his books was um, The Amphibians of Oregon and Washington. And there's tons of salamanders in those states. So I've been flicking huh. through it. It's really good. Yeah. Did it have either of the species we're talking about today? I don't think so. No, I don't think they range into Washington or Oregon. I was going to check anyway, um, but I'm pretty sure they don't from reading about them. Should have really looked, shouldn't I? But I didn't. I've just assumed no. Ah oh, well. <laughs> I have been reading the book though, just for just for pleasure, and uh, it's quite fun. It's quite fun reading a. Uh, I haven't read a sort of field guide f- for pleasure for ages. It's kind of like, sort of each page is a new surprise. <laughs> it's like being there in Oregon. Yeah, there's, like, there's no sort of um, there's no story or sort of any sort of contiguous theme throughout the book, aside from the fact <laughs> apart that apart from salamanders, every salamander is slightly nuanced and different, and they're arranged in families, which means that from page to page, it's not too big of a shock. You know, you can see that <laughs> it's similar to last. <laughs> the only problem was when I got from salamanders to frogs. Oh boy. Oh. That was a shock to the system. Um, oh dear! But aside from that, oh dear, it's been plain sailing. Really, it's been very good. <laughs> oh dear! Um, so you found out you found out who this this episode's for. Yes, we're setting it up. It's about salamanders. Shall we actually um, go? Yeah, let's go. Which is paper one? Um, I think we said we were going to do feet and then sniping. Okay, so first paper. First paper is uh, Salvidio, Corvetto and Adams, published in 2015. 
Potential Rapid Evolution of Foot Morphology in Italian Plef... Plefono did. Plefonto did. Plef... Oh... Donted. Ah, Plefodonted. In Italian Plefodonted Salamanders following the colonization of an artificial cave. And this was published in the Journal of Evolutionary Biology. Mm, 2015, yes. if I hadn't said that already. Mm. Short communication in the Journal of Evolutionary Biology. Packing a quick... But a cool communication. Yeah, sort of quick one-two punch about salamanders and our preconceptions about the very nature of evolution. <laughs> salamanders are here to rock it. Yeah. Confuse it, upend your, your theories. Oof. Yeah. We have had rapid evolution on the podcast before, haven't we? When we talked about anoles. Yeah, I think that's my sort of go-to um, example whenever I think of this sort of stuff. Yeah. Uh, the whole island biogeography aspects, they're like a perfect little microcosm of repeated uh, evolution. Mm. Yeah. And um, one of the papers they cite in this, in their introduction about, because this, this paper is about a rapid evolutionary change in a, in a salamander. And uh, one of the papers they cite is about an introduction of an anole species. I need to be consistent with saying anole or anole, but um, oh I'm... no, I think you, I think you don't need to be consistent. I think not being consistent is the way to be truly correct. Okay, well that's reassuring. Okay, so uh, <laughs> yeah, there's this one anole living on this island, and then another anole gets introduced in Florida, <laughs> and basically Anolis carolinensis, which uh, is the sort of native. Uh, anole moves to higher perches after Anolis sagrii, which is the brown anole, which is the menace one that gets introduced everywhere, um, gets involved on the island. So basically, brown anoles get introduced, and the native Anolis carolinensis decide to live higher up in the perches because all of a sudden they're being competed against lower down. And they also, because of this move, adaptively evolved larger toe pads. And it only took 20 generations mm. and their feet have like fundamentally changed to be better um, higher up in the perches. And that is a demonstration that species interactions can drive rapid evolutionary change, which is pretty cool. And um, and to actually see that, you know, these generations are short enough so you can actually observe that over a long period. I mean, it is still a long period of time. It's still generations of, of lizards, but it is observable. Yeah, we live longer than lizards, so for us it doesn't seem like that long. But for lizards, I mean, I mean that's oh. like going back to medieval times. <laughs> but um, oh, the the good old days, the good old <laughs> days before we were pushed high into the trees. <laughs> but it's also known alongside the fact that obviously that is an introduced species, which you could argue is actually human uh, mediated environmental change. But yes. Beyond that, it's also known that yeah. species in human-dominated environments tend to change uh, phenotypically. So their appearance and their physical characteristics are changing because of changes to the environment which are brought about by humans. So an example of that, which they um, cited in their introduction, which I thought was pretty cool, was um, bullhead minnows, which are a North American fish, which I'd never heard of. They're probably pretty standard if you live in America. But um, after streams were impounded which is where they like slow the flow either to build a reservoir or for some other purpose but after they did this to a, a bunch of streams these um bullhead minnows got deeper bodies 
and their faces were more upturned. And that only took 15 generations. And they were sort of, they were different enough for it to be statistically significant and they looked different. Um, so that was a Curitan and Bowson paper. So there is this mm. precedent for uh, human changes to environments bringing about rapid evolutionary change in wildlife. And that kind of uh, sets the scene for this paper, really. Yeah. I mean, this, what are we talking about? Uh, Hydromantes strinati? Yeah. Um, which is a salamander that usually lives in sort of forest habitats where it's living in the li- leaf litter. So it's, what's the word? Cryptozoic? It's cryptozoic, but it's also rubicol. Oh, what's rubicol? Roots. Rubiculus. Living in rocks. Oh, isn't that Saxicolus? Yeah. <laughs> oh. What did you say first? I said cryptozoic. Oh my god. <laughs> Some of these words just don't need to exist. So what does that Not mean? Not really. Basically, Sneaky. the deal is, this little guy lives in leaf litter, in, in rocks, and along streams. Yeah. Most of the time. But it has been known to live in an odd cave or two. They like caves because um, it's nice and cool. Well, we don't know they like them. I think they must like them then. If this Maybe paper teaches us anything, it's that they like caves. I think it's fair to say they like caves. Because I reckon they tolerate caves. I, uh, I don't know. Just I, waiting for their day to reclaim the surface world. Think about it. You're a salamander, right? <laughs> yeah. Okay, you're on the floor yeah. as it is. That's the best you can hope for. Yeah. And then suddenly... Pretty low to the floor. Everything looks big. Yeah, you're not going to climb a tree because... That's only some salamanders do that, not your species. You know better than to climb a tree. I can't, I can't do that. There's all sorts of evil birds that are eating <laughs> Precisely, yeah. And you're only slightly... stay cryptozoically below this leaf litter. You're slightly poisonous, but because they won't be expecting, expecting you to see in, in the trees, they won't realise they will be trying to eat you. So, <clears throat> well, then you find out about this cave. Now, the cave offers a suite of advantages because it's nice and cool down there. It's permanently damp, so your skin is never drying out. I mean, that mm. already is cause enough to go to at least check it out. And then Yeah, t- that does sound nice. Yeah, and then on top of that, you can go on the ceiling if you want, and you can go on the walls. What a, what sort of school district is it in? Um, it's decent. I mean, um, there's numerous rock piles where you could leave your eggs for 10 months <laughs> until they hatch into fully formed larvae with no... Oh, brilliant. Yeah, with no... On-site daycare. Yeah, 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 with no larval. Okay, you, you you got me convinced. They're, yeah, I mean they're not. I said larvae, but they actually come out ready to go. They um they don't have a larval phase. This species, which is pretty cool, um, they just pop out. I think. <laughs> well, let's hope so. <laughs> yeah. So okay. So basically, the the set the scene for this paper, right? So um, like you said, we're talking about. Hydromantes strinati. What's the common name of that species? I don't actually have it down for some reason. No, I don't either. I think. It's oh, it's because it it's the Italian the salamander, or the Italian cave salamander, or just the cave salamander. Oh, and here I was thinking that was just a descriptive term. It looks as though nice. the Italians call it the Italian cave salamander, and the French call it the French cave salamander. <laughs> so maybe just call it cave salamander yeah i don't want to fall out with anyone it's also found in monaco as well as italy and france but i mean this one specifically is in italy so you could call it the italian cave salamander i no think one can really disagree because it is 
in Italy. I think we should just call them Italian cave salamanders because they okay. that way you if anyone challenges you you could say no 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 I meant they're cave salamanders but they're from Italy. Yeah. Yeah. That's a pretty that's that's safe. I think it's bulletproof. We'll roll with that. Um so Apart yeah. From the ones in the forest. Yes. But they are so these species um Hydrobantes as a genus they're found in California, Italy and France. And they're the I'm, only plethodontids. I'm sorry. I'm I'm sorry. What what? Mate, exactly. California, Italy and France. Mate, so this is what I was doing just before we started. I was trying to get to the bottom of this because last night I was lying in bed and I was suddenly thinking, hang on a second. What kind of genus has a distribution which is <laughs> California, Italy and France? It doesn't make yeah, any I sense. Yeah, I mean, I knew they were in California, but I've just figured that there were some in between. No, mate. There are none. So, I was like, what happened here? I actually looked up a map of Pangaea in bed last night because I was agonising over how this could have happened. And that didn't really satiate my curiosity. So then I started doing some googling. And as it turns out, what happened with these plethodontids was in the Cretaceous period, some of them decided to set off from America, go across the Bering Land Bridge and make themselves known in Asia and so what happened was they basically walked across this land bridge to Asia uh, where they diversified into Hydromantes and Carcinia so prior to leaving they weren't Hydromantes then they did a bit of evolving in Asia split off going back to Europe and also going back to America so salamanders walked to Asia probably Korea what is now Korea diversified into Hydromantes and Carcinia, with Hydromantes heading off to Europe and back to North America, while Carcinia stayed in Asia. And they are the so only... It's like a, a re-radiation yeah. to North America. Yes, they re-radiated back. Huh. Which wow. is wild. Yeah, which is wild. I just love the idea of, like, thousands of salamanders trekking across the Bering Strait. Yeah, well, the thing is... It's important not to think of them as a horde that arrived in no time at all, because in reality, it probably took millions of years of successive generations of salamanders plodding yeah, 10 or 15 metres. Yeah, that's not very meters. exciting, is it? No, it's a bit boring. Just so, imagine sitting at the edge of, edge of, you know, northern Russia, you look out across the ice, and it's just 20,000 salamanders slowly marching towards you. Hmm. It'd be a sight to behold. Yeah. Beautiful. And they sort of vaguely resemble an ancestral form of hydromantes, but not quite. Yeah, so you, if you squint, you're like, oh, cave salamanders. <laughs> Get a bit closer, you're like, mm. no, they're a bit bit primitive for cave salamanders. But mm. it's pretty crazy, isn't it? It's a pretty crazy story. It's outrageous, yeah, that's, mm. that is, that is, absolutely. Yeah, and they are the wild, only... Wild journey. So Plethodon today is the largest family of salamanders, and... Um, all the others are found in the Americas, except for these ones in Europe and the Carcinia. The Korean crevice salamander is the only one in Asia. Ah, see, they don't have proper caves there, so they just have to make do with crevices for <laughs> little guys. Um, but yeah, it's pretty crazy. And so, yeah, this species, living around rocks, and what happened was, like you said, some of them, they're, they're not big salamanders, these. They're 10 to 12 centimetres long. Um, and... Essentially, like you say, there's forest populations, but there's also cave populations. And the ones that live in caves are known to have different feet to ones that don't live in caves. 
Um, generally their feet are a bit bigger. And about 70 years ago, or maybe 75 years ago, an artificial cave was excavated during World War II, and it served as an air raid shelter in San Bartolomeo in Savignon. And um, basically, after this cave was built, the local forest salamanders, because we've already discussed, they do quite like caves, decided... They saw an opportunity. They did, they and saw they an opportunity. Damn well took, a, <laughs> took advantage of it. And they did, they moved in, they moved into this cave. And since then, it's been 10 generations of salamanders. Um, you know, that's probably quite a conservative estimate, but yeah, ten at least 10 generations of salamanders. Well, it's, it, it, it's probably 10 generations worth over time, but generations overlap and stuff, don't they? So... Mm. Everything sort of staggered in a weird way. Yeah. Um, so what the authors decided to do was because they knew that cave salamanders and forest salamanders had different feet, but they knew that the species in the artificial cave were descended from a forest population, they decided what they'd do is look at the foot morphology of three populations. So a cave population, the forest population they stem from, and another cave population far away that is not very closely related. And they mm, wanted to see... That's important, that's important to distinguish. So this, the artificial cave population is known to be more genetically similar to the forest population than it is the comparative natural cave population, which is further away. Yeah, and the importance of that will yeah. come into focus shortly. And uh, yeah, they just went basically measured... They caught about 60 salamanders from each location... Um, you know, measured them and everything, took some pictures. But what they what they explicitly did was take very detailed pictures of one of the right feet for comparison among populations. And, yeah, I mean, their findings were pretty interesting, I think you could agree. Um, mm. Yeah, what basically happened was um, the artificial cave population had more interdigital webbing compared to the other two populations. So the webs between the toes were much bigger and when you looked at the foot area the cave populations both had larger foot areas than the forest population yeah that was that was neat that wasn't it so you had this very nice difference between any sort of cave and forest but the two different types of cave had different ways of achieving this larger foot area yeah the one like you're saying the artificial cave having this interdigital webbing that's increasing the area Whereas the natural cave just had bigger feet in general. Yeah. Yeah. So it's like... But they were still... They were indistinguishable in terms of area between those two cave systems, even though they were like... All the populations had different types of feet. Yeah. Yeah, it's pretty, it's pretty wild. They had similar characteristics. Yeah, because uh, they've sort of obviously tried... Well, tried. Evolution has led them to having bigger feet. It's just done it in a slightly different way, which perhaps is a more convenient yeah. way. Um but yeah, so it could be it could be a more convenient way. It could be a first step towards, you know, achieving it by other means. It could be that the founding population already had slightly more uh, webbing than the other cave one, mm -hmm. and so it was just as the easiest solution at the time. Yeah, um, you know that whole idea of momentum, essentially. Yeah, yeah, and yeah. What is just it's just a really cool example of really easily observable rapid phenotypic change over the course of only 10 generations um, which is just something you don't really get an opportunity to study the fact that there was this kind of natural cave system where they knew exactly how long the salamanders could have been living down there 
I mean, it's just kind of a miraculous. Well, art- artificial, artificial cave system. What natural I... experiment. Yeah. yeah. Did I say natural cave system? You did. I could. I could. I was waiting for you to say natural experiment, and then you switched mm. it up into saying cave. <laughs> good. 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 Um, yeah, good troubleshooting. So <laughs> the point remains, though. Pretty good natural mm. experiment. And uh, yeah, a really cool study system. They did mention some stuff. Um, basically, you know, these changes could be due to founding effects. It could just be that the the few salamanders that founded this um, unnatural cave population happen to have freakishly big feet. But um, that seems kind of unlikely, given the fact that there is probably an adaptive benefit to having larger feet. So I feel pretty sure these results are spot on. Um, but what's cool about it, it is... Does- it makes a lot of sense. Yeah. You know, you can see the mechanism. Well, you can make a pretty damn good estimate of the mechanism that led it, uh, led them to have bigger feet. It's not just a weird, like, oh my gosh, they got bigger feet, but it does make sense in context. Yeah. And it's it's pretty similar speed of rapid evolution to the anole example that we had earlier, where True. the anoles were changing because of the invasion of the brown anole, scaring them up the trees, they needed bigger feet to live up there. So it's actually a very similar example all around, really. They've got bigger toe pads, these little salamanders have got bigger feet, so there's a lesson. A better for climbing with. Yeah. I wonder if some sort of bizarre overly powerful terrestrial ape suddenly started taking over our towns and cities would we evolve bigger feet for climbing if there if there was an advantage to climbing over groveling around in the dirt yes <laughs> good we might get smaller feet to improve groveling uh, <laughs> to better kotal to our <laughs> new ape overlords <laughs> yeah okay so that is the italian cave salamander aka the french cave salamander A.K.A. the Monaco AKA. cave salamander, just to make it fair. Um, and Super adaptive, cave-dwelling, big-footed salamander. Yeah. Do you know what? Bear with me. So, one sec. I'm just going to go and see if that salamander is in my book. Because if it is, I'll feel remiss for having not checked. <laughs> when I flick that page. Well, that, one, that one shouldn't be, but the next one should be. Okay. Well, Potentially could be. Yeah, it could be. It could be. Bear with me. <clears throat> A few moments later. Okay. I'll insert some like sort of theme music for Tom looking through a book. Yeah, you need a you need the that Benny Hill music. I can imagine people chasing you chasing the book throughout the house. It popping out of random doors. <laughs> I'm not gonna do Benny Hill on myself, Ben. I'm not some kind of caricature. Um <laughs> Do you know what people would love it. I'm in the glossary now. Do you know what yep. nasolabial grooves are? No. A minute line or groove which runs from the nostrils to the upper lip of plethodontid salamanders. Interesting. What's it for? <laughs> Nobody knows. <laughs> it Nobody remains a mystery. Knows. Not even the salamanders it are particularly aware. figure six. Oh, wow. You know that little bit that looks like a sort of mini tentacle on some salamanders? Yes. It's that. So presumably oh. it's for smelling. Oh, that makes sense. Yeah. We're learning. Now use it in a sentence. The salamander coaxed the scent of the woodlouse from between the rocks using its nasolabial groove. Ah, elegant. <laughs> nice. Bunch of plethodon species. Plethodon lasoli vandicae vehiculum. Vehiculum? <laughs> what? <laughs> what? 
Why is the it? vehicular salamander. <laughs> Elongatus. Pull the other one. Storm eye. That one's that one's edgy. That's it. Huh. Well, now we know. It doesn't occur now we know. in Washington or Oregon. Which is not surprising being as earlier on we discussed its range being California, Italy and France and Monaco. Yes, and California is not Oregon. No, it's not. Uh, so, paper two. Now, we've gone back in time a little bit for this one. Um, but you'll see why. Yeah, worth it. Yeah, 100% worth it. So this one is by Deban and Richardson, 2011. Cold-blooded snipers. Thermal independence of ballistic tongue projection in the Salamander Hydromantes platycephalus. Journal of Experimental Biology. Sorry, Zoology. Uh, yada 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 so <laughs> part A ecological genetics and physiology yeah what spare me the details so uh, we didn't mention this before but hydromantes salamanders are famous for their tongue projection abilities they can shoot the tongue a distance of 80% of the body length in less than 20 milliseconds and this is achieved using elastic recoil so I feel mm. like we should just discuss for a second how absolutely mad that is well, the first thing to discuss is having a tongue that can, like, 80% of your body. That's too much. That's over the top. Yeah. Storage becomes a considerable concern at that point. Yep. Storage, uh, it getting caught in things, car doors, refrigerators, you name it. I just can't imagine having a tongue that long. It's completely impossible to sympathise with. Yep. Not um, to say impractical. Yeah, I mean, these salamanders are basically biological crossbows. That seems to be it, yeah. Yeah. Um, I actually, I was finding the description of their tongue in this paper a little bit confusing. So I went back to the old... They used a lot of big words, didn't they? Yeah, I went back to the original description of their ballistic tongue, which was um, their 1997 nature paper, which was Mm. um, just called Salamander with a Ballistic Tongue, which is straight to the point and that's pretty cool yeah and one of the figures that they have in this paper is actually adapted from that paper but in the original paper it was like a lot more detailed and it had like really nice drawings of where the tongue actually fits in where the muscles attach which muscles hold it back which muscles encourage it forward um and yeah the the tongue gets stored like in the flanks of the animal it goes down way past the shoulders and it's got it's got cartilaginous sort of pseudo bones what? inside it. Which... On, on one side or like on... down the center of the animal? No, 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 no. Um, so the tongue itself, um, mm. it seems to fold up two sides. There's like, it's a good question, Ben. Hang on, let's find it. Here we go. Uh, I'm, I'm I'm thinking of like one of those tins with the fake snakes that explode out of it. You know. Yeah. So peanut jars. The tongue is actually like in two halves. Um, oh. Basically, like along the middle, and on either side of the body, it runs down the flanks, and it goes like well past the shoulders. This like storage area for the tongue. Um, okay. And then it has the retractor muscles, which pull the tongue back in. Yep. And keep it held. They're actually... Which are also down the side, I'm guessing, alongside the uh, where it's being stored, right? Yeah, they do, yeah. But they attach to the pelvis at the back. 
Oh. Yeah. Wow. So they're the full length of the body. Yes. Yeah. The retractor muscles are. And the tongue skeleton gets stored down to about halfway down the body. Um, and then at the very front, there's like a bit of tongue folded up uh, sort of underneath the neck. Um, yeah. I mean, it's just it's wild. And yeah, well, we can talk a bit about how how it actually works. Um, essentially, they have these retractor muscles on the pelvis and they pull the huge tongue like deep inside the body where it's stored. And um, two thirds of the tongue is that cartilaginous sort of tongue. Not It's not a tongue bone, but that's what gives it rigidity. But that also folds up. And then there's the protractor muscles, which are really obviously visible as bulges on the sides of the body. So you can see these like two fat lines down the sides. And they're the muscles which are responsible for shooting the tongue out. And they're weird because they don't just like pull like a normal muscle. Um, What they actually do is they um, stretch and squeeze what's inside. So they have like... um, Elastic potential. Yeah, so they're made of collagen and... Essentially, they stretch this collagen and they keep it sort of at tension. And then what happens is um, the tongue is actually sort of under pressure. And they liken it to if you've got like a pip or a seed in between your fingers and you're squeezing it. When that eventually reaches sort of a point where it's no longer constrained enough to be held it just pings out, it fires out. Mm. And that is essentially the the way in which this tongue is fired. So it's held under squeezy pressure. And then once the protractor muscles are sort of squeezed hard enough, pow, that launches the tongue from the mouth. And yeah, it just fires at an unbelievable speed. I mean, we can we can just just I mean, we can skip over the sort of methods of what they did because essentially all they did was grab a bunch of salamanders and filmed them in super slow motion eating stuff, and uh, sort of broke that down to examine the stages that the salamander went through, speed and and whatever of the tongue. Yeah. So I mean, we can just go straight to straight to results because those methods are everybody can think of what it would be like to film a salamander eating something. Yeah, there is a slight element of Thunderdome to it. Yeah, I guess, but the crickets and the fly larvae didn't really stand a chance, did they? No, <clears throat> no, no, no. Yeah, and they just basically shot them in high, high. what is it, what do you call them? High-speed cameras with 12,000 frames a second. Pa, pa, pa. Um, well, no, it was, it was 3 to 6,000 frames a second with a shutter speed of 1 1,200th of a second. <laughs> good yeah hey hey man you know you throw numbers around you just gotta make sure they're <laughs> attached to the right thing <laughs> uh okay what else there was one other key piece of information um oh yeah the i the hypothesis was that because of this elastic recoil mechanism cold temperatures shouldn't affect the functioning of the tongue firing out because um while muscles are less effective at cold temperatures, uh, things like they won't contract as quickly and they are capable of drawing less power. Um, a mechanism like this, which is kind of more akin to like a bow and arrow, should be free of those constraints. And that is what they wanted to test. 
Did they say why why it would be free of those constraints? Is it just uh, the materials and stuff it's made out of? It's not doing traditional like muscle contraction. It's literally more... that. Yeah, because it's not traditional yeah, muscle okay. contraction. It's actually this squeezing and sort of yeah. It doesn't require traditional sort of muscle strength to accomplish. It's yeah. The mus the muscle strength is all used up setting this. Uh, you know, drawing the bow, essentially. The release yeah. of the bow requires nothing at all, really. Precisely. Precisely. Yeah? Okay. Hmm. Uh, yeah, so shall we get into it? Like, the... Basically, the salamander's projected the tongue an average velocity of 1.47 to 3.32 millisec- metres per second. Hmm. Or what 5 is- to 11 miles per hour. Five to eleven miles per hour. Yes, that doesn't sound very impressive. It doesn't sound very impressive, but if you imagine a salamander tongue taking five minutes to go an entire mile, that would be impressive. <laughs> yeah, I suppose, but more because <laughs> of the fact that it had gone a mile rather than the fact that it had taken five minutes. Five miles an hour. I can run faster than that. I could run well, away then from you could, a salamander. Then you could out you could outrun a salamander's tongue. As long as I was at, if, as long as I was at full if speed. If you were already at full speed. Yeah. Are you sure that's right? No, I'm not I'm not sure that's right, but you can, <laughs> you can open you can open up your open up your Googles. I'll do it right now. I'll, I'll just put in what was it? We'll put four meters. Yeah, no, seven and a half miles an hour, you're right. Yeah, you're right. Wow. Yep. I'm so happy you converted that to miles per hour because I would have gone my whole life thinking it was actually fast. I don't know why I did miles per hour too. That's such a, like... It's only that's really so helpful re- in a few countries. Let's change it to kilometres per hour. Um. <laughs> well, four metres a second is 14 kilometres per hour. Well, that sounds a lot faster already, doesn't it? <laughs> Very good. Um... Yeah, and so when they had to shoot the tongue further, they the tongue came out faster. And yeah, as expected, they did this at 2 degrees all the way up to 24 degrees. And temperature had no effect on tongue projection, regardless of how I cold they were. I, I think the temperature, temperature stuff's great stuff, but you're underplaying how fast this is. Because that projection is, is faster than the blink of an eye by what? Like a twentieth of a blink of an eye. Blink of an eye is about point four of a second, yeah. Right. And they're like tongue. The time taken for that tongue to project and hit the prey was not point not not seven to not point not two seconds. That is undeniably impressive. But this is whenever when you said it was seven miles an hour, I just think of a car crawling along. It's not very exciting to me. Okay. Well, here's here's something better then, because. Forget the absolute speed. The absolute speed's not a big deal because they're not travelling very far. What is cool is the acceleration. So they had a maximum instantaneous acceleration of 413 to 1750 metres per second squared. Probably doesn't mean much, right? No. What? How fast do you reckon a car accelerating would be? Your standard standard car. I pulled all this stuff from Wikipedia, so you know, take it with um, a pinch of salt. What was the salamander? 400? 413, yeah. Um, a car accelerating. Yep. yep. Uh, 
was, was yeah, you know, middle of the range saloon. One hundred. Four point three. Blimey. All right. What about hundred times faster than the car? Yeah, I also have the the acceleration of the Saturn V rocket after launch. <laughs> Two hundred and fifty. Eleven point two. That's so slow. Okay, an unmanned ballistic rocket. We're starting to get there at uh, nine hundred eighty-two. The the thing that came closest to the higher end that was on Wikipedia were those rocket sleds. You know when they put the rockets on uh, like train tracks for testing purposes, blast them down train <laughs> railway tracks. I didn't know that. Yeah, was that a was one thousand nine hundred sixty-four meters per second squared. That's that's the sort of acceleration we're talking about. So it hits like somewhere a between train. an unmanned ballistic rocket <laughs> and a rocket sled. Okay, that's pretty awesome. That's pretty good. Yeah. Those that Saturn V number looks very low. I'm gonna double check. That. Have you ever watched a rocket launch? It does look slow. It looks like they're sort of just about getting off the ground. Yeah, it was a little bit of a weird statement with it because it says Saturn V after launch, but like when after launch. It's pretty pretty ambiguous wording. Surely you would assume that it's after launch if it's moving, because before launch it would just be stationary. Well, that too, but then I would have... Part of me thinks after launch, like, after that slow bit and when it actually sort of gets going a bit. Hmm. Not sure. But... Either way. Mate, you definitely that's made That's more it, like it, isn't it? You definitely completely made it exciting again after making it yeah. seem not very exciting, so thank you for that. But... You know, the bit you don't mention is like Mantis Shrimp punches are way, 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 way faster. How fast is that then? Oh, I don't have it written down, but I can I, I can double check. I think it's like 10,000. But don't they do something... Don't they hit so fast that there's like a some kind of bizarre vacuum created which just makes everything else implode? Like there's like pressure, that there's like negative pressure or something. Uh, what, oh gosh, they've given to me in 1.5 times 10 to the 5. Uh, so what's that? That's 15,000? Blimey. Yeah, so 10 times faster than this little salamander. Crazy. Pistol shrimp. Yeah. Well, there you go. I mean, these salamanders shoot their tongues out. What, I, what, what as it turns out, is quite quickly. Um... <laughs> and it is not disappointing even if the s- maximum <laughs> speed is not that great it's all about the acceleration not the speed it's a, well it's acceleration and duration it's you know crazy high acceleration crazy short duration so it's not going to have much time to get up to speed it's just bam there yeah and um, there's other species which have evolved these elastically powered tongues one of which we've talked about on the podcast before which is chameleons uh, but toads also have as well so these salamanders, we haven't talked about toads on the podcast before, have we? We have a few times. We should, we should probably do an episode on them. I don't know, man. Maybe. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so yeah, hydromantes, chameleon, and bufo, three independently evolved ballistic systems, which is quite exciting. And another interesting thing about these salamanders, which kind of puts this ballistic tongue in context, is that they really don't do anything very quickly except for this. Um, <laughs> they are slow movers yes they are they really rely on slow movement passive escape um, they literally do, do just... you have you 
have you seen videos of their their quote unquote passive escape? <laughs> did they just sort of do a roly poly to get away? It's hilarious. <laughs> yeah, I've I've got a video. I'll put it in the show notes. <laughs> I'm gonna and maybe about halfway now. through the video actually sort of hops up and it's just these these salamanders rolling down this hill in slow motion. It's absolutely glorious. I don't know what the person doing the video did to make them roll down the hill, and I'm a little bit scared to ask, but there they are, just tumbling on down the hill with their sort of toxic bodies. It's so funny. I, I it's marvelous. How did you find it? Ah, oh, um, I think Salamander I just put rolling. in Salamander Rolling Escape. Is this it? Hydromantes platycephalus. Maybe that's, that's not the species we're talking about, but it does just seem to be. Yes, it is. Yes, it is. What am I saying? That's the species we're talking about. So this must be the right video. <laughs> <laughs> uh, okay. Oh, God, it's a long video, isn't it? Three minutes. Yeah, um, the good the good stuff's about halfway. Some nice habitat shots. Oh, no, the what? Is it a, f- a three-minute uh, three yeah. and four-second video Yeah. called Salamanders Rolling? I just realised it's by the author of this paper. They make use of the tail as a walking stick. That's pretty cool. That's pretty awesome. The tail's poking into the rocks as they go along. They've got quite short tails, these, haven't they? Yeah, that's the video. Yeah. It's a pretty salamander, though. If a salamander is disturbed, it forms its body into a ball. <laughs> They're lovely. And simply rolls downhill. <laughs> Where is it? Oh, my God! They're in a ditch. They're completely oh doomed. Oh, my gosh. Yep. Yep, it it's exactly. Rolls, I, I thought they would do that sort of half roll where they sort of flip off things sideways and just maybe do it once. This is a full-on like roll up in a little marble-shaped object and just tumble down a hill. It's like a baby bell advert. Yeah, but instead of filthy baby bells, you get a delicious salamander. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's and great! Not covered in that's wax. actually crazy. It's like a little um, armadillo. Yeah, that's awesome. Yeah, it's a good defense mechanism for something which is just juicy. Um, but yeah, they're. They're also toxic, so even if you do catch one, don't eat it because it might poison you. Please don't. Um, but what, but what's good is that because they often live at low temperatures and they do live this slow lifestyle, they have this ballistic tongue, which is just a great adaptation because even in a frigid cave, they can still use this elastic recoil hunting strategy really successfully. Yeah, it is interesting just to think whether that came handy. about because they're living in the cold environment or that has enabled them to exploit a cold environment where other species couldn't. Well, in the end of this paper, they suggest that selection for cold tolerance might favour these elastic recoil mechanisms, and then they can subsequently elaborate upon them evolutionarily to produce high performance at other temperatures. So they suggest it might have been because uh, lots of other amphibians rely on lunging and stuff, don't mm, they? So it's the cold temperatures that have prompted it is the idea. I don't think there's any certainty, but that seems to be what they're suggesting in this. At least, I, I mean, it, case. it certainly makes sense, especially when the rest of their lifestyle is so chill. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, apart from the rolling. But yeah, that that is Hydromantes salamanders. Mm. Cool, huh? Their feet evolve, their tongues fire out, and uh, they roll downhill. Coming to a place near you. Quite possibly, as long as you're at the bottom of a s- sort of slope. Yeah, yeah, and just make sure you lock your fly larvae away because they'll get them. They'll get them faster than you yes. can even see. They're rapid.
Um, cool, so um, when Max requested this episode, he asked that we either do alligator lizards or hydromantis salamanders. Um, unfortunately, there isn't really a lot published on alligator lizards beyond species descriptions because they're pretty mysterious. So we are talking about a new species of one. Yeah. Because that's what there is. both words. So I actually worked out how to pronounce some of these words to avoid coming across like an ignoramus. Oh, brilliant. I'll let yeah. you take it away then. <laughs> I think so, it's pronounced uh, herpetology. <laughs> I think. Good one. So, uh, Campbell <laughs> Solano Zavaletella. No. Campbell Solano Zavaletta, Flores Villea, Caviades Solis, and Frost 2016, a new species of Abronia from the Sierra Madre del Sur of Oaxaca, Mexico. So, excellent. the genus Abronia, or alligator lizards, are all from Middle America, so Mexico, Guatemala, El Salvador, and Honduras. And yeah, this is a brand new species being described from Mexico. Um, they actually discuss in this paper, it's very unusual for more than one species of Abronia to occur together. That's Allopatry is quite uncommon, and these are species which usually are... Hmm geographically separated and also have very small ranges so in some cases there'll be a mountain because these are kind of like um, sort of sky islandy type species and in some cases there'll be a mountain and where the mountain's quite tall there'll be one on the windward side of the mountain which is adapted to the cloud forest where the mountain's catching the wind and on the other side there'll be a species which is adapted to the sort of dry piney forest which is quite cool. It's quite a romantic image. Yeah, it's almost heading towards micro microendinism. That sort mm, of yeah. those sorts of patterns. Yeah, yeah. The one complaint I had about this paper was that I could really have used a map of where these different species are. Um, there was no map. <sighs> yeah, always appreciate a map. But I mean, mm. we swapped the map out for awesome pictures of this awesome lizard. So it's true. You know, I did think the uh, species accumulation curve of Abronia being described could and was adequately represented in the text. So that's what I would have swapped for a map if I had my time again. Not that mm, I wrote this paper. Maybe they charged by the figure. That's what I'm saying. I'm offering a trade. Anyway. Yeah, but the... the mm, yes, okay. The, yeah, figure, figure and... Images of yeah, whatever, <laughs> whatever. Um, I would have liked so yeah, that too. Yeah, yeah. But yeah, we're in Oaxaca, which is the most species-rich state in Mexico when it comes to her petafauna, and it is essentially a whole bunch of temperate highlands surrounded by hot, humid plains on three sides. And in 2012, a squad of herpetologists entered the mountains. They were a mixture of uh, Mexican and American herpetologists, and they were doing some inventories of some of these highlands. And sure enough, during their search, they found an alligator lizard in an area which was not previously thought to contain them. And this led to the realization that there was also these two museum specimens, which were kind of different. And Together, that specimen they found in the mountains and those two museum specimens were described 
as this brand new species, and they called it Abronia Quetzpalli. Hmm. Where does that is, Where does that word come from? So it's a Nahuatl word for lizard, Quetzpalli. Oh. So yeah, well, that's quite nice. I like that. Yeah, native language, and um, they do mention there's lots of different ways to spell Quetzpalli. They've spelt it in a particular way, and that is now the scientific name of this species, which you can find inhabiting pine oak forest from about 1,700 to 2,150 metres above sea level in the Sierra Madre del Sur of Oaxaca. So, you know, a species which likes it kind of high up. Um, yeah, I was just double-checking double how big these guys are. And looking at the images, you, I'd expect them to be the size of like a blue tongue skink or something yeah, like that. Yeah, they look massive, don't they? Yeah, yeah, but they're only SVL of like 110 millimetres. So they're not monstrous. Yeah, they're quite modest. Yeah. But the, the image, they've got a very imposing demeanour. Perhaps that's it. Yeah. That's definitely they're fair built. to say. They look, they look like dragons. Yeah. They are beautiful. Yeah. Yeah, real massive scales on the head, pointed face. Um, they just look armoured, don't they? And they've got those long tails, which suggests they spend some time up in the trees. Mm. Although all oh. the lizards in this were found on the ground, I think, or at least the two that they had specific descriptions of where they were found. But presumably that was just them going between trees and being spotted on the floor. Yeah, potentially. Yeah. They're very yeah. What what? Um, how would you describe this patterning? It's like a grey, marbly sort of texture, with very yeah. light grey banding all the way down its length. Hmm. And all the individual scales have like a lot of stippling on them. Yes. Yeah. Like a marble countertop that's also scaled yeah. and shaped like a lizard. Yeah. And, and they the have male... beautiful blue eyes. Yeah. The male is really grey and then the female lower down is sort of brown and tan whether yes, or not that's unless a male striped. female coloration difference or whether yeah it might just be that there's variation but yeah they mm. seem pretty cool nice new species beautiful new species and actually while we're on the subject of abronia had a message from uh, John Rorabeck and he pointed out that there was a species of abronia which was actually lost from 1939. So uh, this alligator lizard was Abronia ocoterinae, and it was described in 1939 from a town called Santa Rosa in Chiapas. And it was called Abronia ocoterinae in honour of Isaac Ocoterina, who was um, Martin Del Campo's mentor who uh, described the species. And they had two individuals. And when they were described in 1939, that was the last time anyone would see one for 74 years. And it wasn't just because the lizard vanished. The, um, the actual specimens couldn't be found, I don't think. And also they couldn't mm. work out where the actual type locality itself was. Because there's 16 towns called Santa Rosa in the region, and that's all they had as a location. There was no GPS points, no nothing, because presumably GPS wasn't invented yet. And so over many years, lots of herpetologists tried to work out where it was, but had no success. Until just recently, the herp.nx team 
landed in an unnamed Sierra in southeastern Chiapas and they'd gone back because they'd actually found a really cool species of Bothriacus there, Bothriacus aurifa, which curiously was the species which had been collected alongside uh, this Abronia ocoterini when it was first described. So they were thinking, well, maybe it might be here. Anyway, nearly 75 years after the first one was seen and the last time it was seen, they actually managed to find some of this Abronia and did some scale counts and it turned out to be this long lost species which now we can actually be sure of the locality of and this lizard is red like it's fully red what like I'll red, an... red like like ketchup sort of red mate mm-hmm. ketchup red it's ketchup red ben i'm sending you a link here you go yeah so john alerted us to this lizard and it's a shame because it was literally just after we done our rediscovered species episode he messaged about 20 minutes after we finished recording Whoa. that that's outrageous. You're so red, isn't it? That's outrageous. It's actually funny you bring up another, like, just rediscovered species. Did you hear about the uh, rediscovered uh, spectacle caiman situation? No. Caiman crocodilus apoporiensis. Basically, do you remember ages ago um, there was a there was a fundraising effort for an expedition into the Amazon to look for a... Uh, uh, subspecies of croc or caiman. Oh, it was it was like for a for a croc fest thing or something. Oh right, okay. There was some money going somewhere, and I couldn't. I I still can't remember exactly what it was about. But now this popped up, and I was like, huh. Or if this was connected. But essentially, this um, Apoporiensis spectacle caiman related crocodile has been has been rediscovered by uh, Sergio Balaguerra Rina. Apologies if that name is mispronounced. But yeah, um, found it. There it is. In Colombia. Wow. Yeah. What, like, so what, they they saved up some money and launched an expedition, and how long had it been missing for? I Well, I, I don't know. I don't have access to the full paper off the top of my, uh, off the top of my head. I just have the abstract. Um, I'm not entirely positive whether it is a rediscovery or it's whether it's, like, people knew there was something there and there was this... As the title of the paper is, Long Anticipated Expedition. Um, yeah, I don't have huge amounts of details because it came out, what, two days ago? Something like that? Okay. But it hasn't had the genetics work done anyway. So, there's, I don't know. I, I think it's more just like, were we found this subspecies where it should be, it's still there. We can actually get some proper information on it now. Well, that's good. I don't know if it it's had nice anything to, to do with the with the whole Crocfest expedition stuff that we were talking about before, but it just sort of rung a weird bell. Because I can't imagine there's many expeditions specifically to find crocodiles in South America. No. I don't know, maybe yeah. there are. Maybe there's just two and this isn't the one that I would... But it just <laughs> made me think. Cool. So um, we also had an email from Eric Butler, who had a bunch of interesting contributions. Uh, in episode 55, we were talking about water snakes eating worms. Remember this? How could I forget? It actually led to an expedition of my own uh, to find a worm, and I succeeded. Um... <laughs> oh, I do remember uh, the story of the worm. Don't you worry. Uh, yeah, so anyway, we were discussing the fact that the presence of a clitellum differentiated adult from juvenile worms. And one of us said, I won't name names, how does that work with male and female worms? And Eric says... All worms in Clitella, 
which is the genus, are hermaphrodites. So it doesn't. It doesn't work with males and females. (laughs) (laughs) Well, as complicated as that answer is, I like how simple it is. Yeah, exactly. Um, He also wanted to point us out uh, the rediscovery of the Fernandina tortoise. So if anyone was big into tortoises, have a Google. Fernandina tortoise. Yes, the Fernandina tortoise disappeared over 100 years ago, but now it's back. And yeah, they found it in the Galapagos. Yeah, so it's a Galapagos giant tortoise. Rediscovered species everywhere. It's great news. Yeah. I like this. It's great. I like hearing about them. I don't like they were lost to begin with, but I do like that they've been rediscovered. So there were, this is actually kind of heartening. There were 15 species of Galapagos tortoises. Um, One was never described. Two have gone extinct. Uh, oh, okay. The third is also extinct, but it's never described. So there's actually 12 <laughs> out of 15 left. That's pretty good. Yeah, 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 I guess. When were they? But anyway, yeah. this Fernandino giant tortoise was last confirmed alive in 1906. And some herpetologists have gone and found it. A couple of years ago... There was poo in the park, and now they've been there and found it. Possibly, probably, definitely. <laughs> well, that's good news. Damn good news. Things looks like they've just got one. Well, that's better than zero. Yeah. It's not much better than zero, but it is better. Yeah, they've got one female, and they're looking for more. Hopefully they'll find more. But they can live 200 so. years. They reckon she might be up to 106 years old. Oh, well, that's not... A- brilliant sign of finding others then is it <laughs> like if it was a very short-lived species you'd be like oh well there's got to be some around here somewhere because this one can't have survived you know that entire period without being seen just by itself those tortoises kind of could hmm. yeah and then um eric also had some interesting facts about sea turtles Oh, apparently, yeah. apparently, one of us in one of our episodes suggested there's nothing interesting to be known about sea turtles, which is a very <laughs> controversial thing to have said. <laughs> oh, it does sound like something we would have said. But anyway, Eric, Eric challenged us on that, and he said last year he was writing some textbook material, and he found that loggerhead turtles may take 45 years to reach reproductive maturity. Um, and there's a paper about that in Functional Ecology, and. He points out that this seems like the lead-in to a crazy mystery because he couldn't find any estimates of loggerhead maximum age, which in general should be about three times as long as it takes them to reach reproductive maturity. And some Mm. turtles max out at six times their age at reproductive maturity, which would give you a 270-year-old turtle, potentially. Whoa! So, yeah, it could be that these loggerheads are extremely long-lived, but it's a mystery. Um, But it's just a mystery that... Eric wanted to draw our attention to. Get and some that's carbon crazy. dating on them. Yeah. I mean, they like could the very end core up being... of their shell should be free of radioactive material, right? Or something. I, d- I don't know. I'm just, I'm just spitballing here. Yeah, I don't know how you age a turtle. Uh... But I can guarantee it's horribly invasive. <laughs> yeah, that's what I was thinking. It's going to end up being really nasty. Uh, but mm. hey, I mean, you know, the rate that turtles are dying, I'm sure we can just find one on a beach. Yeah. Yeah. Just go plastic bag fishing. Yeah. <laughs> Grim. That's <laughs> too dark. I like this trend. I like this trend of of insulting animals, but then being told really awesome stuff about them. 
Yeah, it's good, isn't it? Like, riles people up. So, um, yeah. <laughs> Thank you really very much. We don't think turtles are boring. That's, that's... Yeah. It's all in jest. No, we don't. Yeah. thank you eric and thank you for the message the nice message too so yes, um, thank you yeah that's all my other business um yeah i just had that crocodile thing which i sort of mm. blundered around yeah might cut that out um <laughs> 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 so if you don't know what he's talking about it did get cut out uh yeah cool yeah but you can um, still keep the paper in the show notes okay i'm breaking the fourth wall okay so uh Cool. Well, I think that pretty much sums it up, doesn't it? I think that's about all there is to it. Yeah, I think so. Just a slight apology that it's later than it should be, but, you know, that's travel and things getting in the way of stuff. You know, we're doing our best. Uh, Yeah, do apologise. Yeah, no, we did do our best. And, uh, yeah. Thanks to the people who came and said hello to me at the British Hypsychological Society meeting. That was great. Um, I had a really good time. I won my book and then that. It was just great. So, cheers. (laughs) Got your salamander book. Brilliant. Yeah, yeah, superb day. Uh, yeah, you can find us on facebook.com slash herp highlights. We tweet at herp highlights. Um, this was a Patreon episode, so thanks very much to Max McLaren for contributing to the podcast, and I hope you enjoyed your episode. If anyone else wants to become our Patreon, um, patreon.com slash herp highlights, just you can donate as much or as little as you want a month. Um, and we are very grateful for it. And, Hugely um, grateful, yeah, yeah. Keeps those hosting costs sorted. Have I said herphighlights at gmail.com? I don't know, but you have now. There we go. It's an email, um, you can make use of it. Or not. It's entirely up to you. Yeah. But if you want to tell us we've got something wrong, or if we've insulted an animal that you like, and you feel like you could get some kind of revenge with cool facts, do that. (laughs) Um, It's the sweetest type of revenge. Yeah. Yeah. Who's going to refute that? Unless you've just made up facts. It's... Mm. No my other favourite against that. Yeah, yeah. My other thing I really like is when people have seen the animals that we're talking about. Like, if you've seen a cave salamander in a cave, and it, just please, can Oof. we have a picture of that? I yeah. Just want to get to. Just want to see what they're doing. That's pretty um, awesome. Yeah. So yeah, that's about it. Thank you very much for listening. Mm, thank you.